is a way to think about one of the key ideas involved in Euclid's proof of the Pythagorean theorem. Picture a stack of books sitting on your desk. It has the shape of a rectangle. You're looking at the side with the spines of the books, let's say, that they make a rectangle. Now, you give the stack of books a whack with your hand. So the pile is uh, knocked askew. The shape of the stack is now a parallelogram instead of a rectangle. The area, though, is the same. The, the area of the, the side facing toward you, the side with the spines of the books, obviously it's the same area because it's made up of the same books as before. You just move the books around. It's the, you move the same amount of area into a new configuration, a new shape. Also, the height is the same. The height from the desk to the top of the pile is still equal to the sum of the thicknesses of each book. So, this little demonstration illustrates the geometrical theorem that the area of a parallelogram is equal to the area of a rectangle with the same base and the same height. That's Euclid's Proposition 35, a key ingredient in uh, Euclid's proof of the Pythagorean theorem. To prove the Pythagorean theorem, we need to show that uh, the area of the squares on the sides of a right angle triangle are equal to the area on the square of the hypotenuse. And we do this by starting with one of the small squares on the sides and showing that this area can be remolded to fit into the big square in, in such a way that the, the theorem becomes uh, clear. So the, the idea of Euclid's proof is to transform one area into another. Its uh, shape is transformed while the area remains the same. And the transformation that Euclid uses to achieve this is basically this, the one with the stack of books, so to speak. You, you can interpret it that way by analogy. A stack of books knocked over into a parallelogram shape. So Euclid starts with a stack of books corresponding to one of the small squares, so to speak, and he knocks it over into a parallelogram shape. He then rotates that. 90 degrees, so it's aligned with the with the other with the big square that he's aiming for, and he then straightens the parallelogram uh, back out again, just like he would straighten out a stack of books that has been knocked askew. So that's how Euclid shows the equality of areas that the Pythagorean theorem asserts. So this book analogy, well, okay, it's not perfect because Euclid, so to speak slices his stack of books two different ways. You know, if you want to think of it, the first step that Euclid applies, he's transforming a square into a parallelogram. Uh, if you visualize that as a stack of books, then we, you, you have to think of the spines as sitting a particular way. Then when Euclid later, after rotating, is straightening the parallelogram back out again, you want to visualize that in terms of books, you need to picture the spines of the books uh, differently, in a different direction than the ones for the first transformation. So it's a different stack of books, so it's different but equal. Now, if you have Euclid's text in front of you, you can draw this into the diagram. You can see how do the books need to be oriented for each step to work. If you want to interpret it this way uh, as a stack of books, you will find that indeed you need to change perspectives halfway through the proof there. If, uh, of course, Euclid, there are some differences. Where it's not exact, an exact representation of Euclid's uh, proof, of course. I'm just giving a kind of uh, analogy or metaphor for Euclid's proof. And, and furthermore, Euclid is talking about triangles instead of rectangles or parallelograms. It doesn't really matter. The principle is the same. Just as you can knock over a, a rectangle into parallelogram, you can knock over a, a, a sort of upright triangle into a sideways triangle, right? With the same base and the same height. Anyway, 
So we are continuing this adventure here, reading Euclid backwards. So what we have understood now is that we have reduced the Pythagorean theorem to a more basic proposition, which is the book stack proposition, proposition 35, the area of parallelograms. So, okay, what in turn does that depend on? Remember, we're trying to boil everything down to molecular components. How does Euclid prove proposition 35? You know, how does he reduce this result about the area of parallelograms into even more basic results? So, uh, I should clarify, of course, Euclid doesn't actually do anything like the books. It's just a, a, a fun analogy. Uh, Euclid's reasoning doesn't depend on that, uh, this idea of thinking of the area as made up of all these layers of books. You know, that would be much too informal for Euclid, naturally. So Euclid has a more uh, formal proof, and it is indeed a very nice one. It's very clear, very satisfying. Euclid proves that one area is equal to another by adding and subtracting pieces in a, in a very clever way. He decomposes the full area of the, of the uh, parallelograms that he's talking about into a couple of puzzle pieces that fit just right with each other. So even though the two areas as wholes have entirely different shape, Euclid shows that there's this clever way of cutting the situation into puzzle pieces that are equally suited to each area. So the, the two areas of the two parallelograms are completely different shapes. They are like two different languages, so to speak. You would have thought they couldn't communicate very easily. But the, the puzzle pieces establish a common understanding. They establish something that is equally natural and equally understandable in either language. So these puzzle pieces, this universal language, can be used to translate one area into the other. So if we think in terms of reducing the truth of the theorem to more basic facts, this means that with the puzzle pieces, basically we reduce the quality of the entire areas to the quality of each corresponding puzzle piece separately. Now the puzzle pieces are all triangles. And the fact that the corresponding ones are equal comes down to triangle congruence theorems. That is to say, under what conditions are two triangles the same? For instance, they're just the same if they have side angle side in common. That turns out to be the next step down if you're reducing the Pythagorean theorem. Like a French chef simmering a sauce to make it thicker. So we keep boiling down the Pythagorean theorem and well, now we're down to this. Triangle congruence and some stuff about parallels as well. But, uh, well, we have to keep reading Euclid to find out what happens if you keep cooking it. But before we keep uh, wilting down the Pythagorean theorem on this Bunsen burner to see what it's made of, we should perhaps take a moment to reflect on this theorem about the stack of books, the, the areas of parallelograms. Proclus has an entertaining remark about this theorem in his ancient commentary on the elements. He points out that it shows that the same area can have many different perimeters. The stack of books, if you make it more askew, you will increase the perimeter while keeping the area the same. A very stretched out parallelogram has a lot of perimeter but not a lot of area. According to Proclus, military commanders in antiquity did not understand this with detrimental consequences. Uh, suppose an enemy army is advancing toward your borders. You want to know how many they are. 
So you send a spy in the cover of darkness at night to scout the situation. The spy sneaks up on the enemy's night camp and stealthily walks around it, counting the number of steps. He then rides back and reports this number. So the number of steps around the camp is taken to be a measure of its size. For cities as well, you could do the same thing. How big is is, is the city? You just walk around the city walls, count the number of steps. It is so and so many steps big, so to speak. Of course, this is a mathematical mistake. It, it measures the perimeter when you really wanted to know the area. The stack of books theorem shows that these are really not at all the same thing. Anyway, that's uh, just a fun story. All the propositions of Euclid have some cultural significance like this. It's like you sometimes uh, see the periodic table of chemistry, and for each element, somebody has added some little example of a familiar real-world thing where that element occurs, you know. Hey, you know, kids, uh, lithium isn't just some weird science thing. You use it every day. It's in whatever, like, toothpaste or something. Stuff like that. You can do the same with Euclid's elements as well, you know. A little story for each theorem to lighten the mood, make things a little bit more culturally relevant. But, well, that's just for kicks and giggles. And, uh, let's get back to the more scientific purpose. The systematic reduction of all geometrical knowledge to some sort of ultimate minimum foundation. We're just a few steps into this process. Already, it's starting to raise some philosophical conundrums. So, it was natural enough to take apart the Pythagorean theorem into more basic results, like the one about the errors of parallelograms, the book stack thing. Okay, fine. The, and that, in turn, could be reduced to triangle congruence. Okay, uh, conditions under which triangles are are the same. But this can't go on forever, you know? Uh, we're already down to basic facts. It's difficult to, to see how anything could be more basic than that, you know? How can we go on reducing, now that I'm down to this stuff about triangles, where do I go from there? This path of reduction, it looks so natural when we set out, right? Starting from the Pythagorean theorem, it seems like an obvious way to go. Oh yeah, okay, I can break that into these pieces. But the clear path through the woods is becoming a lot darker and thornier as we proceed. It's no longer clear where to go from here. Instead of blindly forging ahead in the same direction, we need to take a step back and think about where it is that we want to go. What kinds of things should the foundations of geometry be? And there are, in fact, a number of possible answers to this that are very different and completely incompatible. And yet each of them are quite plausible in your own right. So let's have a look at some of the main ones. I mean, philosophical views of the status of axioms or starting points of mathematics. Or what pretty much comes to the same thing is philosophical interpretations of the ultimate nature of mathematical reasoning and the source of the credibility of mathematical reasoning. So do you think that mathematics is ultimately empirical, kind of like physics or science, and the geometry is just a science of physical space. If so, then that suggests that the axioms of geometry should be the most fundamental and testable uh, things from an empirical point of view. You know, stuff you can measure. Or geometry should be things you can check in the field, in a lab, like you do in science. Measuring things with rulers for example, that should be the kind of starting point of geometry if you think the certainty of geometrical reasoning ultimately derives from sensory experience, from data collected from the world around you. Or 
Do you think that mathematics is ultimately pure reason, a completely different approach? Then the axioms don't need to be physically testable, but they instead they need to be mentally fundamental. This suggests that the goal of the reductive process should be to boil down theorems to the most obvious or intuitively, undoubtedly uh, true starting points. This uh, divide between empiricism and pure reason is mirrored in Aristotle versus Plato, one might argue. They each embody one of these. Well, we will look at that in more depth uh, another time. Let's focus now on yet another point of view, logic. There are two ways that you can say that mathematics is pure reason. One associates reason with the human mind, with intuition, aha moments, very psychological things, mental experiences, maybe to some extent even subjective. But another characterization of pure reason is logic. It envisions the laws of reason as detached from human considerations, such as the mind, the subjective experiences of the human mind. Instead, it tries to give a purely objective account of reasoning. Suppose we try to argue that mathematics is basically logic. So it's not based on anything contaminated by humanness, such as the senses or the mind. Instead, uh, mathematical truths are just necessary truths in some kind of absolute uh, sense. The truths follow from absolute laws of reason. There are some kind of abstract truths, more fundamental than human experience or physical reality. This point of view doesn't really impose any evident restrictions on what kinds of things the axioms of mathematics should be. The starting point of mathematics do not need to be physically measurable, nor intuitively obvious, or so, or any other condition you might think of. Logic does not imply these kinds of prescriptions like the other views do. Mathematicians, they simply deduce consequences of definitions and axioms. You know, mathematics doesn't care what the axioms are. From this point of view, this logic point of view that I'm talking about, mathematics doesn't make any claims, actually, about establishing absolute truths at all, you might say. All of mathematics is just if-then statements. If these axioms are true, then these theorems follow. So, therefore, from that point of view, the axioms themselves can be pretty much arbitrary for all the mathematician cares. It's a very modern view. Modern mathematicians pretty much accept this view. It's certainly a very convenient view for a mathematician. It's almost like an abdication of responsibility. You know, what is a philosophy of mathematics supposed to do? What's it for? Surely it should explain the obvious facts about mathematical reasoning, such as that it somehow establishes seemingly absolute truths. When we read a, a proof, such as Euclid's proof of the Pythagorean theorem or the parallelogram area theorem, the proof is very compelling. It gives us complete conviction that the theorem must be true, unlike anything we see in other domains, in other parts of life. There are uh, no such absolutely compelling and irrefutable proofs in politics or ethics. Why not? What's so special about mathematics? History reinforces the same point. Every last one of Euclid's theorems are as true today as they were when they were written well over 2,000 years ago. Every civilization accepts these universal truths. Why does this happen only in mathematics? You would think that a philosophy of mathematics should answer these questions. Actually, the logic interpretation of mathematics does not. It doesn't pinpoint any particular characteristics of geometrical reasoning that explains why it should be so unique 
in these regards. It doesn't explain why the particular axioms of geometry that Euclid investigated were universally accepted in so many contexts, why it turned out to be so uniquely suited to describe the physical world and all kinds of scientific advances that the Greeks had not even uh, dreamt of. So in this way, the logic philosophy of mathematics is perhaps a kind of coward's philosophy. It's a non-philosophy, as far as many key questions are concerned. It just doesn't have any kind of answer to the major questions that other philosophies of mathematics sees as their duty to address. There's a famous essay called The Unreasonable Effectiveness of Mathematics in the Natural Sciences. This was uh, an essay uh, by the famous physicist Eugene Wigner, written in 1960. Everybody cites it all the time. It's a huge classic. Ask yourself, though, why did no one say this until 1960? Did the effectiveness of mathematics somehow become unreasonable only then? Of course not. The effectiveness of mathematics in the natural sciences have been around forever, including the effectiveness of ideas that were first developed for purely mathematical reasons and then later turned out to be hugely important and completely unforeseen uh, scientific applications. For instance, the Greeks studied ellipses in great mathematical details, hundreds of theorems about ellipses. Then, 2,000 years later, it turned out completely unexpectedly that actually planetary orbits are elliptical. Follow the So, well, the purely geometric topic became hugely important in science. No one had predicted it. We had, a, you know, all these theorems just lying around, uh, thick books full of theorems about ellipses, and then, whoops, what do you know? It's exactly what you need to understand planetary motion. Completely unexpected. So, why didn't people say then the effectiveness of mathematics is unreasonable? Why would it take all the way to 1960 before anyone drew this obvious conclusion. I'll tell you why. Because the conclusion that the effectiveness of mathematics is unreasonable only follows if one assumes the logic interpretation of mathematics. Mathematics is nothing but logical inferences from arbitrary axioms. Then, sure enough, it's a complete mystery, it's completely unreasonable that mathematics can work so well when applied to the real world. You know, what people used to conclude from this is that it is the logic conception of mathematics that must be unreasonable. It is unreasonable to think that mathematics is nothing but logical deductions, because that completely fails to explain so much of what we know about mathematics. In 1960, the logic conception of mathematics had become the modern dogma that it remains to this day. It had become so ingrained in the mathematical psyche that mathematicians could no longer even conceive of rejecting it, they had no choice but to declare that the effectiveness of mathematics and physics is unreasonable. That's why Wigner's famous phrase is from 1960, not from 450 BC, which would also, you know, it was just as unreasonable then if you had been a logician. It's not a fact that the effectiveness of mathematics is unreasonable. One or two things is unreasonable. Either the effectiveness of mathematics is unreasonable or the conception of mathematics is nothing but logic is unreasonable. So for thousands of years, people prefer to conclude from this that there must be more to mathematics than just logic. Euclid is not just the axiomatic deductive method, as the phrase one often hears. That can't be the whole picture. The axioms must be somehow more than arbitrary. What makes the axioms true? Logic itself doesn't care, and it cannot help us answer this question. 
So we need something more than logic in our philosophy of mathematics. So I claim that in, only in very modern times did logic conception become the norm. Maybe in some future episode I might discuss uh, what circumstances made that come about, what forced mathematicians to take that quite extreme view. Anyway, the important thing for our present purposes as we read Euclid is to understand that with the reduction process that we have begun, that consists of breaking down theorems into smaller and smaller pieces, the end pieces, or the ultimate rock-bottom pieces, they need to have some sort of claim to credibility. They cannot simply be whatever you're left with when you keep reducing and reducing. Or can they actually? Well, I say everyone rejected that view, but I could also play the devil's advocate. Listen, for example, to this fragment from Eudemus Physics. As for the principles they talk about, mathematicians do not attempt to demonstrate them. They even claim that it is not their business to consider them. But, having reached agreement about them, they prove what follows from them. It's a bit of a disturbing quote in my opinion. It seems to almost assert a logic view that I said was regarded as unacceptable at that time. Mathematicians only prove what follows from axioms, and they claim that it is not their business to worry about the status or truth of those axioms. Sounds strangely modern. It's, it's just the view that I attributed to the 20th century. When actually, well, I think it's not really what the, the quote says, though, that's a very modern interpretation for various reasons. In part, what the demos is saying, perhaps, is that the justification of the principles, as he calls them, which means axioms or postulates or whatever you like to call them, that that, that justification shouldn't be regarded as part of mathematics. It should be regarded as part of some other field, some more philosophical domain. But whatever, that's just putting labels on things. That still means that the axioms are to be justified some way. They're not arbitrary. The justification may be called philosophy rather than mathematics, but whatever, you could call it what you want. It's in any case very different from not justifying or, or being concerned with the nature of axioms at all. And the quote also said, if you notice, that the mathematicians don't care about the axioms having reached agreement about them. What does that entail? On what basis did mathematicians reach this agreement? That opens the door for all kinds of considerations, the status and the nature of axioms within mathematics, even according to this quote, the devil's advocate quote. So I think it's safe to say that the logic view by itself was not satisfactory uh, throughout most of history. Uh, the starting points, the axioms of mathematics, they need to have some kind of justification. And in fact, there is one way in which logic itself can provide such a justification. So the, the problem, remember, that we need to solve is the following. We started with the Pythagorean theorem, we reduced it to more basic statements, then those to even more basic ones in turn, and so on. Where do we stop this process? Do we stop when uh, well, we just don't see how to go any further? This is what I criticize as untenable, you know, because that would mean declaring whatever we're left with to be axioms without conceiving criteria of justification for which kinds of things should be allowed to be axioms or which should not be. The axioms can't just be arbitrary because then we can't explain the, the success of mathematics. One hope some logicians has been that everything could be reduced to definitions. There are no axioms. 
Everything is at bottom simply definitions, the meanings of words. Mathematics is about drawing consequences contained in the definitions of concepts without any assumptions being made. So that would be great for a logician. Some people have tried to fit geometry into that kind of mold. It doesn't really work, though. Geometry needs assumptions, genuine axioms. You can't get away with only definitions. You can't reduce mathematics to purely linguistic game. And besides, even if you could, what would be the guarantee that the definitions corresponded to anything, that the entities defined actually exist, and that the definitions are not self-contradictory or inconsistent, and so on. Definitions alone cannot carry this burden of justification. You need something more, something that can be the source of mathematical certainty and uh, explain its success. At this point, there is one more ace up the logician's sleeve. It's a pretty clever one, you have to say. There are statements that are logically self-justifying. Statements such that, if you try to deny them, you have actually committed yourself to accepting them. An example is the famous statement by Descartes, I think, therefore I am. How could you deny such a thing? What would you say if you wanted to deny it? No, I don't think that, or I think that's wrong. As you can hear from these sentences, actually you walked right into the trap. By trying to deny that you are a thinking being, you made statements that actually presuppose that you are a thinking being. The, the denial is self-defeating. You can't deny the statement without implicitly conceding it. When you say, no, I don't agree, or no, I don't think that, or no, I think that's wrong, you're, you're saying... You're using those very concepts that there is an I and that, there, that you are thinking that you are trying to deny. It's actually uh, you uh, assumed necessary for you to be able to make that statement of refutation. These kinds of statements are justified by what is called consequentia mirabilis. There's an argument of this type already in Aristotle. Aristotle uses it to prove the proposition we ought to philosophize. Try to deny that. So you would say, no, we should not philosophize. Well, in that case, it will be important to reach the conclusion that we should not philosophize. Reasoning away to this conclusion would spare us from the mistake of philosophizing, and then we could do more important things with our time instead of philosophizing. But now we're caught in a trap again, right? We wanted to establish that we shouldn't philosophize, but in trying to argue this point, we actually committed ourselves to the position that we should philosophize. Namely, we should philosophize in order to establish the conclusion that we shouldn't philosophize. So once again, the, we, we try to reject the proposition, but actually we ended up implicitly accepting the proposition that we're trying to reject. And that's uh, unavoidable with uh, certain types of propositions. Could it be that all the axioms of mathematics could be of this type? That would certainly be a logician's dream. It would be these kinds of statements that you couldn't refute without, you know, sort of uh, involuntarily accepting them as you were trying to refute them. That would be a terrific way of justifying ending the chain of reductions of theorems to lower and lower constituent parts. Okay, you start with the Pythagorean theorem, etc., etc., all the way down. What should be the last point? Well, you should keep reducing until you're left with nothing but logically self-justifying statements. Consequentia mirabilis axioms only. They must be accepted as true because it's logically incoherent to try to deny them. Anybody who tries to reject them ends up 
making a fool of themselves and actually accepting the axioms in the process of trying to deny them. This view has had its adherence through history. Clavius, he was very fond of the consequences of Labrys. Uh, Clavius was an influential figure in the discussions of Euclid around 1600. He was the editor of the standard Latin version of Euclid that everybody used at that time. Uh, so even uh, later, uh, Sacheri, who did some very sophisticated work on the foundations of geometry in the 18th century, even he then was very keen on this trying to reduce the foundations of geometry to consequentia mirabilis. So this idea, it was certainly had great attraction. People really tried to make it work. Ultimately, it failed. There was an approach based more on what the logician wanted than on what mathematics is really like and how mathematics wants to be understood. So altogether, the reduction of mathematics to logic is an idea that has had great appeal to many Several times in history, a complete reduction of mathematics or logic has seemed within reach, only for the quest to end in bitter disappointment soon thereafter. This is also what happened with uh, Frege, Russell, Hilbert Gödel, and all that stuff centuries later, around 1900, early 20th century. Bertrand Russell put it in interesting terms. Here's what he says in his autobiography. I wanted certainty in the kind of way in which people want religious faith. So he's talking about his early career, around 1900. At this time, he worked on an enormously ambitious project to reduce all of mathematics to logic. That didn't work. And as Russell himself says, after some 20 years of very arduous toil, I came to the conclusion that there was nothing more that I could do in the way of making mathematical knowledge indubitable. Russell's case is quite typical, one might argue. Others have had the same experience when they have tried to achieve the same goal. It's a great temptation. You know, one logic to rule them all. My precious. Many have been seduced by that idea and spent 20 years obsessed with it only to fail, as Russell did. Let's look at the most famous of the problems Russell uh, ran into, the so-called Russell Paradox. So a popularized version of Russell's paradox uh, goes like this. A barber in a city, shaves everyone who do not shave themselves. Who shaves the barber? So there is no coherent answer to this question. The barber cannot shave himself because he only shaves those who don't shave themselves. Also, he could not not shave himself because if he didn't shave himself, then he would be one of those of the people whom he does shave, namely everybody who does not shave themselves by definition. Either way, you get a contradiction from this, the way the uh, the, these criteria are defined are are inherently incoherent. You, know, you cannot make sense. You cannot give it a definitive interpretation one way or the other. Mathematicians unknowingly allowed this type of paradox to enter their logical systems. It's stuff about the barber. That's just a translation into everyday terms of something that first occurred within mathematics itself. Russell thought this problem was fixable. Others thought this was a comeuppance for logic that was both deserved and bound to happen. Consider, for example, the reply by Brouwer, an influential, eccentric mathematician in the early 20th century. Here's what he says. Exactly because Russell's logic is no more than a linguistic system, there is no reason why no contradictions would appear. That is to say, since logic is divorced from meaning, it is divorced from the real world, 
Why wouldn't it be inconsistent and self-contradictory? History shows that inconsistencies can very easily creep into formal axiomatic systems against the best efforts of even top mathematicians devoted specifically to building rigorous, coherent foundations. There's a long list of leading logicians who have published systems of logic which turn out to be inconsistent. According to Brouwer again, the language of Euclidean geometry is reliable only because the mathematical systems of relations which are symbolized by the words of that language have been constructed beforehand independently of that language. So that is to say, it is precisely because it is not merely logic that Euclidean geometry is so reliable. It is anchored in the real world, and the, the physical world has a much better track record of being consistent than the thought constructs of logicians. There were other people who thought that way at the time as well. The similar ideas are expressed, for example, by Emil Post, another rebel at the time, who likewise called for, as he put it, a reversal of the entire axiomatic trend of the late 19th and 20th century with a return to meaning. Those are his words. Logic had gone too far. Some formalization and logic are powerful tools in mathematics. Of course, everybody knows. But you can take it too far. You can take it so far that mathematical theories lose all bond with reality and with meaning. Then there is no grounding anymore to protect you from contradiction and inconsistency. Logic is the hygiene which the mathematician practices to keep his ideas healthy and strong, said Hermann Weil, another uh, contemporary of these guys. However, like hygiene, you can overdo it. Some hygiene is better than none, obviously. However, obsessive hygiene can undermine the natural state of the body and the immune system, maybe. So logic could be like that, you know, it's like cleaning everything away with bleach all the time. Okay, it's good to clean, but if you overdo it, you kind of clean away the very thing you were trying to protect. So there were big debates about these kinds of questions in the early 20th century. The people I quoted were all part of these heated debates about logic. You know, the, we can't go into all the details about that, but for our purposes, what we are interested specifically in the logic-centric attempts at interpreting Euclid and uh, accounting for the success of Greek geometry in logic-based terms. So indeed, these kinds of logic-centered interpretations, they have been sought eagerly. They are very agreeable for some purposes. They have an almost religious appeal, as Bernard Russell himself said. But ultimately, there are severe limitations in here, inherent in those views, which have meant that most people from antiquity to early modern times have felt that something more, some additional ingredient beyond mere logic is needed for a successful philosophy of mathematics to account for the nature of mathematical reasoning, the source of its certainty. You know, you need more than logic. As we r continue to read Euclid backwards, the closer we get to the beginning, the more essential it becomes for us to make up our own minds about uh, philosophy of mathematics. Any moment now, we will have reached all the way down to the axioms, and then push comes to shove. We're going to have to take a stand and say, this is why we stop at these particular axioms and why we should believe in them. So let's keep reading Euclid and let's see how we can answer this challenge. Thank you.